0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. When a personal journal is written, it is often not meant for the eyes of anyone but the writer. Yet when a stranger's journal is read, the reader often becomes a voyeur of the innermost secrets of another. And whether it is the true journal of another or fiction, who cares? It often remains a good story. Lynn Freed, originally from Durban, South Africa, has written the fictional journal of Agnes LaGrange entitled The Mirror, which reveals the thoughts, feelings, and loves of Agnes, starting when she arrived in South Africa to work as a housekeeper and ending 50 years later. I spoke with Lynn Freed in December of 1997 from her home in rural Northern California and asked her, who is Agnes LaGrange?
1: Agnes LaGrange is a character who, who came to me, um, and I don't generally make this kind of claim for my fiction, but anyway, she did arrive, at least she arrived by way of her voice, in a situation that I was writing a short story around, which is the arrival of a young uh, English woman, working-class English woman, to South Africa in 1920 to work as a housekeeper, um, really a glorified maid, for a family of Lithuanian Jews uh, in the process of which she uh, has an affair with the old man and starts, as she puts it, making her way in the world. Anyway, I had this situation in mind to write about and once I came to write about it, her voice was just there and I wrote... A short story around this a very short one which actually constitutes the first chapter and was published in harper's um i can't remember when a couple of years ago and then when i was moving on to start writing a novel it was her voice that was still with me and and i took her along into the novel and that's how how it began really and that's how i came to this character whom i suppose like all characters including dogs and cats is an aspect of oneself but uh, she's not me. Sometimes I wish
0: she were, but she isn't. And you present this character uh, uh, in a voyeuristic way. When when one looks at the mirror, it's like one is picking up uh, another person's journal, Agnes's journal, and you go into the intimacy of her life and her thoughts.
1: Right. Uh, yes. And I, once I had her voice, and it was a voice really like a spoken journal voice somebody who is writing in a journal um, it does have that feeling of voyeurism which of course ties in with the mirror uh, motif which I tried not to and I hope did not overplay in the novel this is a young woman who's actually never seen an image of herself at the beginning of the novel and is given a full length mirror by her employer in which she sees herself for the first time and falls in love with herself and through the mirror her she comes to an understanding of herself as a woman, uh, her her sexual prowess and and her her, uh, other kinds of prowess. But anyway, uh, it does fit with this kind of, as you you would say, voyeuristic feel to the read of the novel, which is also uh, added to, by the way, um, that Crown published the novel as a journal. It looks like a journal. It holds in the hand like a journal. It's got old photographs included in it. So it has a kind of a memoir feel to it, which is just exactly what I intended.
0: Are these photographs yours?
1: No, um, some of them are mine. Uh, some of them I got from old family photographs and so forth, but um, the bulk of them were uh, obtained from the local history museum in Durban.
0: The characters in the novel, mm-hmm. very few of them um, have names. Many of them are characters, the hunter, the tycoon, the newspaper man who was her husband, but he's nameless in the novel.
1: Right. Um, I didn't actually think this through uh, as, I was, as I was writing it. The newspaper man came as such because before she knew his name, presuming she did, um, she thought of him as the newspaper man. They were both residents in a rather run-down hotel near the railway and then she happened to marry him and somehow it seemed right that he remained in her consciousness as the newspaper man. She never really had an intimate relationship with this man. And then somehow that's the way she seemed to consider all men, I think. And by the way, there's also a woman who's never named the mother-in-law. But I've heard a lot from women who've read this novel and they've said, you know, good Lord, this is so often the way women consider men. I don't think men really understand that. There's been a lot of literature from men about how how they feel about women, which is really just this way.
0: What do you mean?
1: What I mean is that is that women are seen as what they stand for. I, I, by the way, I didn't think of any of this while I was writing it. It just seemed that this was the kind of woman who would think of a man as a newspaper man, a hunter, a banker, a tycoon. Um, but in fact... Uh, that there I'm sorry I'm at a loss to think of an example but something may come as we talk of um, fiction that's written about uh, men uh, say Don Juan types she is not the equivalent but men who've had several women in which the women really are not who they are but what they are what they represent to that particular man on his on his quest for self-knowledge one would hope
0: an object instead of a person
1: Yes, I don't give it any judgment. Uh yeah, or otherwise, but yes, I think I think that you could say that.
0: In your personal experience, uh, you're a native of Durban, South Africa. Right. Um what is the what do you draw on from for painting the picture in the mirror?
1: I draw on that deep memory uh that somehow miraculously tends to come to one when one is writing fiction properly and somehow eludes one when one is struggling and cannot get it right. Uh, In this case, it was a territory I knew well in another era, which is namely, you know, the era that I grew up in, 50s, 60s, 70s and on. Um, But it was so evident to me as I was writing this that, and I was using a lot of of, visual aids I used a lot of uh, architectural histories um, histories of Durban and so forth just to see the way people dressed the way they looked the way the place looked it wasn't difficult Uh, I had never even thought of writing any kind of historical fiction and I wouldn't really think of this as historical fiction as such but um, until I wrote this and once I was doing it it was really quite easy then with the second draft and so forth I checked up on the fact Um, and I just had a letter in fact, last week, from a 90-year-old woman who lives in Philadelphia, who grew up in Durban in the 30s, and said, "I had got it exactly right," and th- so it was pleasing to me—really pleasing.
0: Really, that—that that must be. Yeah, that must be. When you draw on the deep memory uh, of your background, is there a way of uh, sparking that or turning on the lights in that memory so that it can drop out of the tip of your pencil?
1: I don't know what to, to say you now. Teach writing every now and then, and I, and and this is a question that students often ask because uh, because of course it's it's the situation one wants to be in when one's writing fiction, and it's the situation one can't get into when one is blocked from writing fiction or anything else. I think really what brings the deep memory is sitting down and writing, struggling with it until you have the voice right, and. The character that comes with the voice and the situation that comes with the character that has the voice and then somehow one is in the territory of the fiction Um, one has to inhabit the fiction the territory of one's fiction in order to in order to have it live on the page and I don't think this is something that you can wish onto the page it's something you have to work for and then it sort of comes to you I can't remember who it was Uh, I think it was Thucydides who said, Inspiration visits you. No, it couldn't have been Thucydides. Inspiration visits you while you're firmly seated at your desk. And I think that is indeed the case.
0: And that is when um, the voice resounds?
1: Yes. I, if you're lucky, I mean, you know, there are many things that one writes and fails at. But if you get it right, if, it's, if it is a territory which you can inhabit or colonize, whichever metaphor works for you, and of which you're not afraid, um, then I think the fiction has a chance. But there are so many ineffable things that are involved in the writing of fiction that it's very hard to pinpoint, say, just the territory of the fiction or just the character or just the voice. It's a kind of a confluence that has to happen uh, if the fiction's going to be right. And if it's wrong, you have to call on years and years of craft to fix the bits where it doesn't exactly flow, because of course it doesn't most of the time. Most of the time one's fixing.
0: You've made a point of saying that uh, Agnes LaGrange is not Lynn Freed, that this is not at all autobiographical.
1: Well, I wouldn't say not at all autobiographical, because in fact everything one writes, I think, has is autobiographical. It comes through one's consciousness, but this is a character who, if she has any connection with me, is not aspect of myself, much as if one is writing a play for instance, every, every character on the stage is an aspect of oneself or an aspect of one person, so yes, I would say this is a character I understand well and that in another life I could be, but that in this life I'm not her um, I think that's about the best I can do
0: <laughs> it w- Would uh, wish fulfillment be uh, a proper phrase?
1: Probably part of it, not a huge part Um, because when one writes a wish-fulfilling character, that character is very often two-dimensional. I see a lot of that uh, in fiction that I read of students, you know, that they wish to create a character and they have the idea of the character and then somehow that character feels painted onto the page but not too well. Uh, It's a problem.
0: Lynn, I'd like to ask you if you could uh, to please read uh, a portion of The Mirror for us
1: um i'll read a bit where agnes um is leaving her husband and small child uh temporarily anyway the child's name is leah and the husband is the newspaper man to go off and visit her lover who is a hunter and lives uh inland in southern africa north of south africa probably in what was <coughs> rhodesia and she's off on a train It was a tiring journey, three days in the heat, switching and changing and showing my papers for stamping. But it was lovely too, stopping at the little towns and then the plains of yellow grass and the umbrella trees and the mountains blue in the distance. After a while there were even animals to see, zebras and antelopes and giraffes with their babies, all looking up as we passed as if we were interrupting their tea. And every now and then the native children would come running from the, their kraals and dance next to the train, holding out their hands for sweets. I had a coupé to myself all the way and all the time in the wor- world to think of where I was going, what I was leaving behind. And the funny thing was, now that I was going to see the hunter, I wasn't at all sure I wanted him. And so what was the point of the journey? To punish the newspaper man for things he'd said to me in anger, all of which were true? Truly, it was Lear who was punished, and by mistake too, and when I thought of this I was sad all over again, marooned in my coupe moving north through this vast continent, because I was willful and adventurous, and I wouldn't give up what I wanted. And then at last I arrived, and there he was, waiting on the platform, which wasn't even a platform, but a mound to step down onto. By now I was mad for him to make sense of the journey for me to grab me up and tell me things I'd never thought of that way before. But instead he was saying, did you not receive my telegram and perhaps you are not aware. And by the time I was loaded with my things into his jalopy, I was full of pity for myself and close to tears too, which is the thing I knew he hated in a woman. There were to be two nights in a day together, said he, as we bumped along and then he'd have to be off for a fortnight. And no, he couldn't take me with him. What was I thinking? I'd have to stay in the house with the servants, but it was no place for a white woman and no place for a holiday either. I just sat beside him, hanging onto the strap with both hands, because the road wasn't a road at all, just tracks in the dust. And not once had he touched me except to hand me up into the jalopy, and I didn't need his warnings about white women and so forth to know that he didn't want me there at all. I was his girl at the port two or three times a year, and I felt stupid now for the distance I'd travelled and all the letters I'd sent, the things I'd thought he'd want to hear about me. "'Are you cross?' said he, smiling at last, a hand coming over to take mine. "'But I didn't like this either, the smile brought on by my setting myself against him. "'And so I told him this and loudly too, and it was then that he laughed and stopped the jalopy and pulled me over to him. "'I didn't part, that was never my way, but even though it was lovely to have the smell of him again and the bitter taste of his tobacco,' Still I was calculating when the next ship would sail south from Byra, thinking I'd plumb for that. It would be a lovely way to go back. It was sundown when we arrived at his house with a great hallooing and the natives running out to stare at me. One woman stood apart with a half-breed child strapped to her back and another standing at her side. He said something to her in her language and she stepped forward looking down at the ground. I knew then that the children must be his and the mother suffering to see me. She was very black and smooth, with gleaming round full breasts and a beaded cloth tied round her hips, and the thought of them together filled me with longing. He must have known this because he took me inside, had everything off me at once, even the pins out of my hair. It was dark in the house, hardly a house at all, really. Just two rooms and a roof made with mud and wooden poles and thatching. It smelled of earth and animal skins and the primus and his tobacco. He hooked up the cloths that closed off the bedroom from the veranda, letting in the last of the afternoon light. Come, said he, leading me naked out onto the veranda and pointing to a watering hole down the hill, the animals coming in to drink. This kind and that kind which I pretended to see, but all I could think of was him behind me, breathing on my hair, the salt of his arm when I licked it, and how two things could be felt at once, one for this night and the next, and the other for my future without him in it.
0: Let me take a moment and say that we're talking today with Lynn Freed, the author of a novel called The Mirror, a portion of which she just read. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Lynn, the half-breed child uh, comes to Durban later in uh, Agnes's life right. and finds her. Right.
1: Um, the, the hunter goes off to fight in the Second World War uh, and clearly is killed in the Second World War, although this happens offstage, but he leaves a note with his, with his woman, or wife, uh, in the bush to say that if he doesn't return to send this boy to find Agnes, which is what happens, and the boy does come, but he's wretchedly homesick, and the presumption by Agnes, which in fact seems to happen, is that when he's When he spent enough time being homesick, he'll go back to the bush.
0: Lynn, tell us about yourself, your experience in growing up in in South Africa in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s.
1: Well, um, I think any country that one grows up in, however strange and odd, which South Africa certainly was in many aspects, seems at the time to be normal to one, even though one is told or one reads in the newspapers that this kind of normalcy is is not uh, acceptable either to oneself or to the world. I grew up in a family of uh, liberal, at least liberal-claiming uh, Jews. I went to a British girls' boarding school, although I wasn't a boarder. Um, my parents were actors, and my mother had a, a, a theatre school. My father and many of the other actors had other other jobs. My father ran his father's business, but he was an actor. He had been in the Cambridge Players in England, and my mother had been at RADA. And then they went back to South Africa after they were finished their uh, students and and um, were in theater all their lives.
0: Your, so par- I, your parents were natives of South Africa?
1: They were both born there, my father of English parents and my mother of Russian parents. Um, so yes, they were both <laughs> first-generation South Africans. And so I grew up in a rather... Peculiar household, not typical. Um, it, it, we lived in a huge old house, twenty-room mansion that, <clears throat> that my father had grown up in, and um, and they were always off to the theatre at night. And there was always much drama on the home front as well as as on the stage. I was the youngest of three girls, quite much the youngest, and so happily for me, rather left to be free. And so I ran around a lot; was rather free childhood i was unsupervised except for school and the usual things um and i had you know, most childhoods are, are fraught with various things but i think within that given that i had rather a, a i think a fine childhood
0: what was the drama that you refer to in your home
1: oh there was always fighting and shouting and all sorts of uh <clears throat> all sorts of, of, of noise. Uh, my parents were both quite dramatic and if the, things were not lively enough then they would make them lively by fighting with each other and that we were always fighting with each other. <laughs> it, it was, And then there were five servants um, who were in and out and there was always drama around that actually. My second published novel um, is a very much fictionalised version of that. It's called Home Ground and it's about just such a family. Somewhat, somewhat rather a lot fictionalized.
0: At some point you left uh, South Africa and traveled extensively around the world.
1: Well, what I did was I left South Africa when I finished my basic degree and came to America as a graduate student, got married very early, uh, had a child quite young, and then um, was teaching for, uh, for a while and just desperate for a life of my own. And so what I did was was stopped teaching. Um, I was teaching in the university um, and I became a travel agent. And under under that guise, and I was also started writing novels. I wrote three novels while I was doing this for 10 years. I used to take off and go and travel on my own uh, all over the places that I wanted to go to, Egypt, uh, South America, a lot, uh, parts of Africa, at least parts of Southern Africa uh, and Europe, which I had to that point not seen. Um, and I like to travel on my own, and i I did so quite extensively so that that's how it happened, but it wasn't it wasn't as a girl. it was really as a young mother that I was doing this rather rather frowned on by a lot of people, but anyway, I'm not sorry North, take
0: it, taking your children with you.
1: No, I only have one child. I sometimes would take her with me, and I often would send her um from when she was about six years old, she was flying on her own um all over the world. I'd send her to South Africa and then pick her up there or they'd send her to meet me in London. Um, she was quite independent. And, uh, and it, although she didn't love it when I would take off, she, she adjusted to it. Children are remarkable.
0: As you uh, said earlier, when you grow up in a place you don't know it's different from anywhere else.
1: Right. I found out. <laughs> and uh, I would go back to South Africa a lot. It's a country that I love and have always loved uh, and have, and it's, uh, I mean, I'm talking about the physical aspect and the people I know there and it's home to me and it, for some reason it's the country of my imagination.
0: Tell us, uh, if you would, about the changes and in your interpretation of the changes that are going on in South Africa now.
1: Well, I'm really not qualified to, to contact to comment on the, on the changes in any but uh, a rather interested observing way because I've been out of that country living for 30 years although of course as I said it's my country I think changes are remarkable wonderful the most wonderful thing that one could hope for I grew up all my childhood expecting a revolution uh, any minute I mean it was the horror of childhood um, living under the cloud of the Holocaust and then growing up with the terror of a revolution. Um,
0: you speak of the revolution of uh, the blacks against the whites?
1: I, I and my family and everybody that I knew fully expected that one day this would happen, and it should happen. We just didn't particularly want to be wrapped up in the middle of it.
0: Um, well, be, being a member of a liberal family, what sort of discussion or what sort of ideas were there in your home that would uh, affect the potential revolution that you speak
1: of Well I don't want to overplay the liberal hand I mean the, these were, were people who were liberal by association they uh disapproved of the government and they um and they were vociferous about this as were most of the people that I associated with and that they associated with but the political discussions around the dinner table or in the home were so rare and of such uh, a primitive order that I don't really think they would be worthy of talking about. My parents were deeply uninterested in politics. Um, it was as if, really, it was just a nuisance out there and a bad thing, and tat tat tat. But on went life. So, so really, they were not sophisticated in their in their opinions by no means, and they were just slightly less blind than most South African whites at the time to what was going on, but only slightly.
0: When they escaped. Um the pogroms of the Jews around the turn of the century, which I presume is what uh, caused them to flee, did they bring with them a, a substantive Jewish heritage?
1: Uh, well, um, to answer the first part of the question, they, my parents themselves did not flee at all, and in fact... The
0: grandparent, your grand grandparents, your
1: grandparents My parents left I, under, under those kinds of circumstances. My father's parents were already uh, in England, and had been for a couple of generations, so they they were not um whatever they fled when they fled it was not the 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 late 19th century pogroms um but my parents both grew up in extremely observant Jewish fam- Jewish families um and so did i my parents were oddly enough i mean so much about my upbringing was anomalous but they were extremely identified jews we were sent to hebrew school three times a week um we were sent to synagogue once a week all the, the holidays were observed and they, most of the South Africans when I was growing up were by affiliation Orthodox Jews um, and probably still are. I'm not sure of that though. Um, so we were too. And, um, and, but then that, that was one side with a vast family um, who would meet every Friday night. I was never allowed out on a Friday night. Um, they didn't keep kosher which was considered an amazing thing in, by their families but then after a while the rest of their family, the rest, their generation, of families followed suit. Um, but uh, so was there was that, the Jewish side of things, and then there was their theatre work, which took them into a totally other uh, world of people. And so there were these sort of two areas of their lives which didn't have much to do with each other. In fact, had nothing to do with each other, but were equally important to them. And so we grew up in those with those two different aspects. Um, they were very much Anglo-Jews in, within the South African context, both of them having spent time in England, especially my father, who had gone to boarding school in England, to public school.
0: And whose parents were English.
1: Parents were English,
0: yes. Certainly. Mm. Well, Lynn, what are you uh, working on now at, in your home in Northern California?
1: Well, I'm at the moment, at the beginning of a book, and I find it extremely difficult to talk about what I'm writing before I really know it. So I, it's, it's, a, it's a book of... Of uh nonfiction actually a memoir, um, but more than that i can't really say because i'm still finding out um but I do a lot of short stories, not a lot i do i write short stories I write whatever comes to hand um to the imagination's hand, should I say?
0: Well, Lynn Fried, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. And that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately?
1: Hmm. Um, let me think of it. Uh. I have, what have I read lately? I go blank when I'm asked that. I'm so sorry. Um, what have I am reading? I'm reading <clears throat> Jonathan Yardley's Misfit, which is uh, it's a wonderful biography of Frederick Exley. And I'm reading uh, George Orwell's essays. I tend to read several books at once, and I'm reading a wonderful book by Graham Boynton called Last Days in Cloud Cuckoo Land about uh, the end of white rule in Rhodesia. Um, so that's three.
0: <laughs> well, Lynn Freed, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Lynn Freed is the author of The Mirror, the story of Agnes LaGrange. The books that she recommends are Misfit by Jonathan Yardley, Essays by George Orwell, and The Last Days in Cloud Cuckoo Land Dispatches by Graham Boynton. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org Christina Anstead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.